It's Wednesday, July 11th, and this is The Daily Dive. Straight out of the you-never-know-what-they'll-think-of-next file, people are using Fitbits and Apple Watches to monitor their heart rate when binging on drugs. Christina Farr, reporter for CNBC, joins us to talk about concerns that doctors have and also the weird game of people sharing their own screenshots of elevated heart rates on forums like Reddit and Twitter. The reunification of children and families is also underway. A federal judge has issued a deadline for the government to reunite children under five with their parents, and they are missing that deadline. Trevor Hughes, reporter for USA Today, joins us to discuss the difficulty of tracking all the kids and families and what happens to them after being reunited. Finally, all of the wild boars are safe. The last of the 12 boys and their soccer coach, who were trapped in Thailand, have made it out of the cave safely. My producer Miranda joins us for a wrap-up of the story that caught the attention of people all over the world. We'll tell you how they were rescued, the first thing they ate when they got out, and any health problems they may still face. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. These activity trackers like the Apple Watch and Fitbit, they track heart rate. And they do it okay. I mean, there isn't not perfectly accurate. But if you were really trying to monitor how someone was responding to a, a drug, you would need blood pressure and you'd look at the heart's rhythm. So there are things that these activity trackers aren't doing. Joining us now is Christina Farr, tech and health reporter for CNBC. So here on the podcast, we love a lot of uh, stories about new tech and new uses for tech. And I saw the headline for your story and I loved it immediately. People are using Fitbits and Apple Watches to monitor their heart rate when binging on drugs. Uh, I mean, (laughs) right off the bat, that catches your eye. You profile a guy named Owen, who's uh, from California. Tell us his story. Well, Owen uh, didn't want to use his his real name, as uh, as you might imagine. Um, he didn't he didn't want to be associated necessarily with drug binges. Right. <laughs> um, but he shared with me just over coffee. When I thought we were going to be talking about something else entirely, and this and this topic came up, and he mentioned that when he goes to bachelor parties and and nights out, that he has this Fitbit. He's had it for a few years, and just noticed kind of out of the blue that when he was doing certain recreational drugs, namely cocaine, that his heart rate would spike. And now he sees it as something that he he perceives as keeping him more safe. So if he sees it spike up past a certain point, then maybe he says, hold you less of the drug. And of course, I talked to a lot of medical experts, and we should definitely caution people at home that, that we do not recommend trying this. Um, and it's certainly not a safer way to, to do drugs, and, and nobody advises it. But these medical experts pointed to a big issue, which is that heart rate is only really one measure of what can happen to your body when you, when you take drugs, although you might see a spike like this. In your article, and according to Owen, his heart rate jumps up to about 150, and that only happens with intense physical activity when he's exercising. He's using it as a monitor, saying, oh, my heart is being overtaxed, and I know when it comes around, if my heart rate is too high, it's time to take a step back and and skip that turn. And Owen is a runner, so he sees his heart rate spike to 150. Sometimes he says when he's running uphill. So for him, it was it was pretty scary that he was standing still, essentially, for his heart rate to spike to 150 just because he did a, uh, indulged in this drug. And doctors say it obviously causes a false sense of security doing drugs based off of a, a fitness tracker, basically. And even still, those fitness trackers, Apple Watches, sometimes they're not as accurate as you think they are. It's a great point. Doctors essentially told me that 
these activity trackers like the Apple Watch and Fitbit, they track heart rate. And they do it okay. I mean, there isn't, it's not perfectly accurate, so there's that. But if you were really trying to monitor how someone was responding to a, a drug, you would need blood pressure and you'd look at the heart's rhythm. So there are things that these activity trackers aren't doing. And you could actually be in a very dangerous place without, without realizing it. And, and perhaps if you don't see your heart rate spike up as high as, say, 150, that you take more of the drug than you otherwise would have. So I think that's the genuine concern around this um, idea of giving someone a false sense of security. One of the interesting things uh, that I saw in your article, and this isn't specifically a story about Owen, this conversation, types of conversations are taking place on Reddit forums, on Twitter, where people are sharing uh, screenshots of their own fitness trackers and they're spiking heart rates. It's this kind of weird part oversharing part internet challenge about who has the highest heart rate or something like that. So just talk about that a little bit. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people that are constantly doing this stuff. It's not just Owen that's doing this. So when I first heard Owen's story, I, I was sort of surprised because um, I hadn't really discussed anything like this with anyone before. But then I started doing some research, just looking you know, at Twitter and, and Reddit forums, like you said, and, and I just saw it all over the place. And once you start looking, you, you can't stop. People were posting these screenshots they had taken after taking not just cocaine, but other sorts of drugs like MDMA. And they'd noticed sort of similar things where it was spiking quite a bit. Um, some people were noticing it on the on the Fitbit app as well. So there were lots of discussions about this. And I saw that it was a broader trend beyond what Owen had recognized. In your article, too, you even mentioned how there's a YouTube channel called Drugs Lab with three kids that they're um, not in this country, but they're doing drugs and then they're monitoring their activity. And it's supposed to be an educational video for millennials from the descriptions. <laughs> but even still, yeah. I, I spent time on that YouTube channel earlier today. I spent like a half an hour looking through some of these videos because it's so interesting. I, and the question I walk away with is, how does that even stay on YouTube? And if they're doing drugs on camera? I was pretty shocked to see it on YouTube also. I mean, it's just one of these things that you would expect to be taken down. Um, but I think the argument that it's a new kind of drug education, that there's some merit to that. Um, you could tell kids don't do drugs, and that's one method. But if we perceive that in society that some will do it, then I think you know, the idea behind this channel is to provide advice to those kids to make sure that they do it more safely. I'm hoping that people see this and they actually don't want to do drugs right. because they see the the impact. But of course, you could see it going the other way, the other way. They do have a lot of disclaimers on there, so they're trying to cover themselves, but it's just still pretty amazing how you get to see that. And and going back to Owen, uh, in the last part of your story, I thought also was pretty funny is how British special forces are also getting into the game of using your Fitbit and your Apple Watch to monitor drug use. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Owen told us this, this story of how he was in at Burning Man last year, which is this big festival in, in the desert. Of course, there is drug use at Burning Man. I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. But he told us that he was at a tent doing cocaine and some guys who were in a British Special Forces unit came over and he showed them how these drugs were impacting his Fitbit heart rate. And this led to the group of them doing cocaine together and, and looking at the impact of the Fitbit heart rate by passing it around. So he told us that story and we kind of threw it in the bottom of, of our piece. The takeaway is don't use your Fitbit and your Apple Watch to monitor your drug use. 
But yeah, uh, yeah. And don't do drugs, of course. There you go. Yeah. Christina Farr, tech and health reporter for CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell people not to come to our country illegally. That's the solution. Don't come to our country illegally. Come like other people do. Come legally. Joining us now is Trevor Hughes, reporter for USA Today. So yesterday we found out that a judge was not going to extend the deadline for the Trump administration to reunite families. They weren't going to meet the deadline that they imposed. There was about 100 kids under five that had to be reunited with their families, they weren't going to meet that deadline. Uh, so they had asked for an extension and the judge refused. What else happened? That's the thing is that we are seeing these stories of, of reunification across the country, but they're very small and very limited right now. And we, we honestly don't have a great sense of exactly how many have occurred. And I think that's what this federal judge was, was frustrated by, is that the administration hasn't been providing very, very specific details on a broad level about exactly how these reunifications are happening. U.S. District Judge Dana Sabra did say that it was encouraged by the progress that they were making. But you're right. It's happening very slowly and in little pockets where we can't really detail exactly how accurate this all is. What was the order specifically that the kids had to be reunited? Children under five had to be reunited with their parents. That's about 100 kids across the country. And, and the judge said that about 60 of them had to be reunited by this deadline of Tuesday. And we have seen those reunifications happening. We saw one happen in Michigan. We've seen some in Arizona. But again, because this does involve children, it's hard to tell exactly how this is happening. When people are arrested, there are jail logs. Reporters go check those. In this case, it's sort of very difficult to track exactly how these reunifications are happening. The uh, real test, though, is later on this month, July 26th. The HHS is under care of about 3,000 other minors, and those kids also have to be re reunited with their families. I've spoken to some, some attorneys who've been working on these cases on behalf of, of the parents, and it's just a, a mammoth task. One attorney told me that they, they actually made the surprising discovery the other day, which is that Folks who are um, detained at the border are given an alien identification number, and those numbers are sequential. And they discovered that, lo and behold, they could track families much better because they knew the numbers were sequential now. That was something people didn't know even a couple weeks ago. And what are happening to these families once they get reunited? I mean, they're still technically in the country illegally. So wh where do they go? The reality is, in some cases, people have been deported already. And so, you know, you don't know how that reunification is going to work. Some families are being released on bond. Others apparently are being uh, kept on detention or freed on GPS ankle bracelets. That's, that's a, a common process. That was under the Obama administration. They used the phrase catch and release. That's what's happening to some of these folks. Parents that have already been deported. And then I guess there was others that were released into the U.S., probably with ankle monitors, like you said. They have to go to HHS and request to sponsor their child. So they have to start like a whole new process, basically. It doesn't sound like we, we collectively as, as a government had a great system in place for doing these reunifications. And it sounds like things are, are getting on track now. According to the attorneys I've talked to, that there is, there is a sense that, that things are getting more organized. There was a little bit of wiggle room provided by the judge to uh, the government with reuniting these families. They were following guidelines established in 2000 on how to reunite these. So what has changed in that process? The challenge is that when you're dealing with children, you have to worry, and this is a sad state of affairs, you have to worry about human trafficking. 
And so the judge is, is basically saying Congress wanted everyone to, to follow these rules to prevent any, any potential human trafficking. And the judge is saying perhaps there's a way that we can speed up that process given the circumstances under which we're operating. I don't think anybody really has any animus towards a child or anything like that. And they are trying to take care of them. They they have said they're waiting for a few parents that have cleared criminal background checks but haven't been verified as a parent. There was a few people that said, okay, I admit it, that's not my kid. So obviously those kids won't be reunited. But they are using DNA testing to make sure that uh, parents are there with their children. The challenge with DNA testing is not all families are related by genetics today. You have adopted kids, you have blended families. That's going to be a hurdle that the government needs to address as it goes through this reunification process. Again, but there's that tension between the law requiring very strict background checks because of fears about human trafficking. Reports are saying that uh, the judge had asked uh, an attorney for the ACLU to prepare a proposal about possible punishment for the government. What does that look like? They are working towards this process and they're trying to make it happen as quickly as possible. But real uh, punishment, what, what does that entail? I'm not sure we even know what that could look like. There are administrative penalties. I mean, it's, it seems a bit silly to have the government fine itself. But, exactly. but the thing to bear in mind in this case is that the, the judiciary, the, the federal judges, are the third branch of our government. And they are equal in power to the president and Congress. And so the federal judges have a lot of latitude to, to make things happen and to hold people accountable as we go forward. Trevor Hughes, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. I think everyone here in Thailand that was a part of this effort is feeling so happy for the positive outcome. It's been amazing to be able to work with our partners in such an effective way. We're thrilled. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. The wild boars are all saved now. They've all made it out of the cave, including their coach. It was a grueling 18-day ordeal that claimed the life of an experienced diver. People all over the world were glued to their TVs trying to watch any glimpse that they could of this. In the end, what happened when the final kids and the coach were brought out of the cave? Thailand's Navy SEALs posted on their Facebook page that the remaining four boys and their 25-year-old coach were all brought out safely early Tuesday evening, uh, local Thailand time. And several hours later, a medic and the three SEAL divers who were hanging out with them in the cave for the last week were brought out. So there's nobody left in the cave. Everybody's out. It's empty. An amazing thing. And they had to get these British divers who actually got there first and found the kids. And then from that, it was the race to figure out a plan on how to get them out. There were so many problems with getting them out easily. You know, they wanted to drill holes. They wanted to pump water. In the end, How did they actually do it, Miranda? They had to guide these 12 boys through super narrow passageways and some were partially or fully submerged in water. And remember, Oscar, when these boys went into the cave, they didn't know how to swim. So a lot of what they've been doing for the last week and a half or so since they were discovered was learning how to swim um, and be comfortable in the water. And this is not clear water. It's not beach water or anything like that. It's dirty murky, muddy water. And there's no light. Yeah, there's no light. It has sediment from the walls and everything like that. So super difficult even to learn how to swim for the first time there. The coach taught them how to meditate and stay calm because in a lot of these tight spaces, especially when you're in the dark with strangers, they would panic. He's been getting a lot of flack and a lot of praise. The coach, the 25-year-old coach who led them in there. One, well, he led them in there. He's in charge of them. He sh- that shouldn't have happened. He put them in danger. But two, 
he used to be like a Buddhist monk or something like that. And he did take care of the boys in there. I mean, they lasted nine days before anybody found them mm -hmm. with no food or water. So he did take care of them. He taught them how to meditate and keep calm in a really hectic situation. And so, there's something to that. If you've spent any time with 11 to 16 year old boys, yeah. you know, they're a rowdy bunch. Also, they were able to get the boys out easier than they had expected because rescue teams were able to pump at least 40% of the water out of the cave. Oscar, it was so much water that nearby farmers' fields flooded, but I don't think they care so much. Right now. And that was a big thing. They were able to get a lot of the water out at the same time that the weather was very accommodating because they're in monsoon season and they were, I know it was a race against time for more rain to come. So they lucked out with that one. The first part of their two and a half mile journey was wading and diving through flooded passages. And then there was a one mile climb over slippery rock, which they used ropes for assistance. And a lot of these channels were too small for the boys to swim through while wearing their oxygen tanks. So they had to take them off, hand it to the, the diver in front of them or behind them. And then the adult had to carry their oxygen tank through the rest of the chamber. The most dangerous part of the journey was going through what they called a pinch point. It's only 15 inches wide and it's so narrow that they had to actually separate from their guides there. And that's the most risky section also because it's nearly pitch black. So they said overall it took about nine hours for divers to get the first group of four boys out of the cave. At a news conference, they asked if the boys had been sedated or something like that. And there was some snarky comments that said, who's going to chloroform a kid? <laughs> but they did actually give them something to calm them down so they wouldn't be too excited or stressed. Obviously, they're making the best determinations of what to do. It seemed like that is a, a very logical and smart thing to do. I mean, they're, like you said, these pinch points and having to climb so high up over rock and then jump right back in the water. It's a grueling ordeal for these Navy SEALs even. So all the kids are out. They're all in the hospital now. Kind of a funny thing. They're all being quarantined together. In the same room. As if they weren't tired of each other already. <laughs> but I, I always love these types of things. What was the first thing that they ate when they came out? We went over some of the letters. They wanted fried chicken. They wanted chocolate. And they did get their uh, bread with a chocolate spread. So I'm guessing it's like a Nutella style yeah, something. something. Like that. Sounds good. Um, and they're eating rice porridge, which is super boring because their bodies can't tolerate a lot of spice. They've been eating like moss and water for the last <laughs> month. Um, but... The best thing is their request was fried pork with basil. And mm, that it got, sounds really good. It got denied. They're in quarantine. Their doctors are waiting to see if any types of illnesses develop because they were in the cave so long that they have no experience with what might have been down there. So they're quarantined. Their families have only been able to see them through glass so far. What is expected of the kids in the coming days? The boys are in varying stages of development. So the first group is already adjusted to natural lighting and they're not wearing their sunglasses while the later two groups are still wearing sunglasses inside. Uh, they'll be quarantined for about a week before doctors clear them of any like rare infectious diseases they may have gotten from the deep cave. But mostly what they're concerned about is the psychological problems that are going to affect them later on down the road with PTSD and nightmares, anxiety, that kind of thing. It, it would. It's totally likely that we'll end up seeing some type of movie made in the fashion of the 33 Chilean miners. And I would be willing to bet money, Oscar, that at least one of these kids grows up to join the Thai Navy. Yeah, I mean, these guys are their heroes right now. So if you want to be a hero to somebody else, it's obviously something that they might want to pursue in their life. So pay it forward. Yeah, great story and, and glad that everybody made it out okay. Uh, thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.